you're listening to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest today is Sarah Burstein, Professor of Law at the University of Oklahoma College of Law. Burstein is the leading scholar of design patents in the United States, and today we will discuss her article, The Article of Manufacture in 1887, as well as her draft paper, Current Work in Progress, Whole Designs. So welcome, Sarah. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. You know, as you know, I'm a huge admirer of your work, and I absolutely adore your your Tumblr slash blog, uh, Design Law, which I recommend to all my students. And, and maybe we can talk about that a little bit and how it relates to your scholarship later yeah. in the interview. Great. So I wanted to start by asking if you could just explain to my listeners what exactly is a design patent, right? So a lot of people have heard of patents before. What does it mean when we put design in front of the word patent? And how are they different from other kinds of patents people might be aware of? Yeah, so when most people hear the word patent, they usually think of utility patents, which are the patents that we have here in the U.S. that protect how things work. Design patents are different. They protect how things look. So in theory, if I came up with a cool new chair that was extra comfortable and you know, more ergonomic than prior chairs, but also uh, looked really great, I could get both a utility patent on the functional attributes and a design patent on the visual attributes. Okay. So if I were to look at a design patent, how would it be different from a utility patent? So utility patents are claimed using words. Um, it's called peripheral claiming, you might hear, and the patent attorney tries to describe what the inventor has created verbally. Um, so all those ergonomic things that I talked about with the chair, you would try to describe that in words. Design patents are totally different. There's a pro forma verbal claim that says, I claim a design for a chair as shown and described, and the showing and description is done using pictures. So you have to submit pictures showing uh, sufficient to disclose what you've invented. Okay. So with a utility patent, then I describe what my invention is and what I'm claiming using like words describing the nature of the invention itself and what I've added that's new. How do I do that with a design patent? How is it different from a utility patent? Well, you basically just show what you created. Um, so you could, for example, using the chair hypothetical again, uh, just take pictures of your chair from a bunch of angles. That would be perfectly sufficient to describe your design. Um, but we see uh, some, um, uh, shall we say, shenanigans. Um, others might say sophisticated patent drafting practices. Um, you don't have to submit a photo. You could submit a line drawing. And a line drawing would omit a lot of that detail, right? So if I have a chair that's made of wood, I could omit the wood grain and claim a chair that's made of anything as long as it has this shape. Um, So we see that. And the other thing the patent office lets you do is they let you disclaim parts of the design. So I could, for example, claim just the back of my chair or just a leg or just a fragment of the leg um, and say, that's a design, that's all I'm claiming. And mm-hmm. the reason you do that is because you have a lot broader scope, right? How would, I, how would I do that? So I would uh, use dotted lines, for example, if I just wanted to claim the back of my chair to show 
everything except what I want to claim. So if I had solid lines just showing the back and dotted lines for the legs, the seat, everything else, my design patent could be infringed if the back of a chair looked the same, even if the legs, the seat, any other part were totally different looking. Interesting. So the ideas then that are protected in a design patent or the design, I guess, that's protected is sort of defined through a kind of visual rhetoric as opposed to uh, verbal rhetoric. rhetoric. Precisely, right? We say a picture is worth a thousand words and in design patents, it's exactly that. Um, You don't, uh, I mean, how are you going to describe how something looks Uh, using words? We, uh, some of us went to art school and were trained in doing that. Um, But most lawyers weren't. uh, Most patent attorneys certainly weren't. Mm. Uh, So the pictures help tell both competitors uh, where they can and can't go, at least in theory, and the public, um, right? Because the theory with a patent, a design patent, just like utility patent, is once it expires, that design belongs to the public. So the public deserves to know what it can and can't do and what it owns. Okay. Okay. So I know that when it comes to utility patent, there are some things you can get a patent for and some things that you can't. In other words, you have to apply for utility patent and mm-hmm. the patent examiner either gives you the patent or they don't. And they have a standard for figuring out whether or not to do that. How does that work for a design patent? So in theory, it's the same. You have to apply to the patent office. We don't have unregistered design rights like, say, they have in Europe. So you submit an application with that pro forma verbal claim with your pictures And then the examiner um, uh, will evaluate that to see if it's met the requirements for patentability Um, or more precisely uh, whether or not the examiner can prove that it doesn't meet those requirements. Interesting. So the burden then is on the examiner to explain why you're not entitled to a design patent. Exactly. That's how the patent act is written. Okay. And how would they do that? What would they look for? So in theory, Uh, there's three major substantive requirements. The design has to be novel. Basically, it has to be new. It has to be non-obvious or new enough, right? There has to be some uh, advancement over the prior art. And it has to be ornamental. Um, And I say in theory because all of these requirements have been eroded a lot over the past 30 years by the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. Okay. Okay. Well, maybe we can, I think most people have some idea of what new and new enough would mean, at least in a theoretical sense, but Mm -hmm. what about ornamental? What does that mean? So this is the key requirement for design patents. Um, Utility patents, those technological scientific patents are supposed to be useful. That's sort of the key requirement. So ornamental is the heart or it's supposed to be the heart of the design patent system. Um, The Federal Circuit, which hears all the appeals from design patent cases, they have for a little over 30 years, they've interpreted ornamental to basically mean non-functional. So um, it's a little bit more complicated. I'm happy to go into it. But bottom line is, if there's alternative designs, Mm -hmm. the Federal Circuit's going to say, okay, that's fine. That's ornamental. So if there's any other way to make a chair with same or similar functional characteristics, that's going to be fine. Ah, okay. And it seems like there's plenty of ways to make chairs, huh? Yeah. So maybe that rule makes sense for things like chairs, right? Where people buy them, we think looks matter. They're at least part of the calculus, assuming some requisite level of comfort and durability and 
you know, sort of your normal functional requirements are met. There's a lot of variety. That's why people pick those things. Um, one problem is they apply this standard to everything <laughs> that you can get a design patent for, um, whether it's a drill bit for your fracking, uh, you know, operations or um, a hip implant that uh, you never actually see outside of your body. Um, and so it's a really uh, forgiving standard or permissive standard. Basically, everything is ornamental these days. Right. So, so by that standard, who's sort of got the advantage? Is it, is it easy or hard for a design patent applicant to get their patent awarded? It's really easy. Um, Professor Dennis Crouch has done an empirical study showing something like 90% of design patents uh, applications, as far as we can tell, get granted. And I say as far as we can tell, because if you apply for a design patent, but you abandon the application or it's finally rejected, the PTO actually finds proof that it's not new or novel. Um, we don't know what happens to that. Those applications never get published. So there's kind of this deep, dark hole at the patent office where we don't know what's actually going on. Interesting. So like a lack of information about how the system is actually working in practice. Yeah. So it could be there's a 100% grant rate, but everybody's just abandoning. They just decide they don't want to pay that final issue fee or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, more likely, there's just a very small number of patents that are getting rejected. Okay. Okay. Well, let's, let's get into the substance of, of your paper now that we've kind of fleshed out a little bit of what design patents actually are. So in your paper, you talk about the article of manufacture in 1887. Why article of manufacture and why 1887? Why is that important? So in design patents, we've got this really uh, weird or unique special remedy. There's sort of your normal patent remedies under a section called 284. And then there's section 289, which gives design patentees and only design patentees, not utility patent owners um, or patentees, a special remedy. And they can seek the, quote, total profits made by the infringer from applying the patented design to an article of manufacture. Ah, uh, uh, okay. So I'm starting to get it, right? The article of manufacture term then seems like maybe it matters because it would determine the kinds of recovery that a patent owner might be able to get. Exactly. So in theory, um, Sorry, there's a lot of history. <laughs> no, that's all right. Best way to, yeah. um, uh, no one disagrees, right, that um, you are entitled by the plain text of the statute to the total profits of the article of manufacture to mm-hmm. which the design is applied. Okay. Um, the problem is, is that the meaning of the phrase article of manufacture and the types of things that we think of as protectable designs have changed dramatically since 1887, which is when this special remedy was originally enacted by Congress. Okay. Okay. So that's why it matters. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Does it have, does it have a practical effect today? Yeah. So this all came to a head. Um, we've got this old system, right? Design patents have been around since 1842, but they weren't really popular um, for a number of reasons outside of certain industries. But then we had 
this case that you may have heard of called Apple v. Samsung, uh-huh. um, where we had a billion-dollar verdict. And it turned out that the verdict was based mainly on these Section 289 damages. So all of a sudden, everyone was interested in this tiny backwater area of the law. So damages for what? Like what, what, what was at stake in Apple v. Samsung in relation to design patents? Yeah, so the, there were three design patents that the jury found to be infringed, and all of them related to smartphones. There was one that claimed basically the black front face of the iPhone, one that claimed uh, a front a flat front face of any color plus the bezel. Um, and these all had some various embodiments with those dotted lines I was talking about earlier. And just to um, clarify, the bezel would be like the what part? Yeah. So the metal part, if you think back to the original iPhones, um, there was a metal sort of piece that went around the edge of the front and okay. sort of framed it and protected it. Uh, But again, this was all done through line drawing. So it didn't have to be metal. It didn't have to be any specific color, but you could still infringe. Okay. And then the third patent claimed an array of colorful icons, basically one screenshot of the graphical user interface of the original iPhone. Okay. So if I understand it, then the, the claim then was that Samsung's smartphones had infringed one or more of these Apple design patents and and then what yeah so um exactly there were three different patents there were 19 accused phones and uh they all accused at least or the jury found that they all infringed at least one of these phones and the judge instructed the jury that the article of manufacture under 289 was the whole phone right Mm. so even if i only infringed just the graphical user interface, um, the jury found that they were entitled to the profits for the whole phone. Oh my. Regardless of how it looked, regardless of the rest. Um, And so this uh, uh, struck a lot of people as being strange and odd uh, in light of how we normally do remedies in other regimes, um, including other IP regimes. This just seems like a lot of money um, to give for what some people might consider to be unimportant parts of the phone. Um, And so we got this huge billion dollar verdict and the court of appeals for the federal circuit got to interpret this statute or at least this article of manufacture part for the first time in 2015. Okay. And they said, this statute means you are entitled to the total profits for whatever the defendant sells. The entire end product is the article of manufacture. So not just the screen, even though those are manufactured and sold separately, not just the bezel, not just the software running the graphical user interface, but whatever the defendant sells is the article of manufacture. Now, a lot of people assumed that this was the rule before Apple, Samsung, but this was the first time a court ever said that was the rule. Okay. So what so this was next? pretty dramatic. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so this case ended up going all the way to the Supreme Court, which was, as far as I know, the first time the Supreme Court's ever actually granted cert in a design patent case, or the hmm. first time they've ever actually agreed to do it. Because there's a bunch of old cases, but that was back when the, the Supreme Court actually got direct appeals. 
Mm. You would go straight from the trial court to the Supreme Court in all patent cases. So this was kind of a big deal in a lot of ways. Um, and, and the reason I wanted to go into this research was, um, as you might imagine, this was pretty controversial, right? Uh, this interpretation of the statute, the idea that you could get this much money um, for, again, what some people might consider to be unimportant or small features of the phone. Um, and the argument I kept hearing from the patent bar, um, including some of the amici and some of Apple's lawyers, were, well, yeah, it's insane, but it's what Congress said, right? <laughs> this is just the plain text of the statute. This is what Congress intended. So maybe it sounds crazy to you, but you got to go back to Congress, right? The courts got to stay out of this. So that's why it was important to me, um, was the, this sort of argument that seemed to be accepted by everyone without uh, reflection or critique, <laughs> um, just saying, well, this is obviously what Congress meant in 1887, so uh, the courts just have no role here, right? Okay. Take your arguments to Congress. Uh, so that's why I decided to dig in. And I, you know, in my naivete, thought, you know, I just wonder what article manufacture meant back then. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll look it up. This will take me like a day or two, right? I'm just curious. Um, and like, what is it? Almost three years later, I'm still writing about this stuff. Wow. wow. Uh, so what I found was actually pretty surprising. And I, I feel like I owe a uh, apology to the 45th Congress. Uh. Um, I'll admit I read the current statute and said, that's insane. What were you thinking, Congress? And it actually turns out it was a lot less insane mm. back in 1887. <laughs> well, I, I really want to hear a lot. I want to hear more about your research and, and what you discovered, but, but, you know, I'm on pins and needles here, right? What did, what did the Supreme court ultimately say? <laughs> so the Supreme court said the federal circuit was wrong. Uh -huh. um, said that the rule that they stated that the article of manufacture is whatever the defendant sells was incorrect. And then they stopped. <laughs> they, uh, they, they expressly refused to come up with um, a better definition or a better approach, certainly didn't adopt a test, and sort of left the lower courts to flounder for themselves, um, at which point Apple v. Samsung, and there was also a companion case, got kicked back to the federal circuit, at which point the federal circuit kicked both cases back to their respective district courts. Oh, wow. So are they still pending or have they resolved at this point? So those two particular cases have both resolved and settled. And in both of those cases, they adopted a test that was put forth by the U.S. government as a friend of the court in front of the Supreme Court. Um, and at this point, there's a number of courts that have adopted that test. Mm -hmm. um, and that's my other paper, <laughs> which is explaining why um, that test is insane and we shouldn't adopt it. Um, uh, I think we should go back to the sort of original conception of these things instead of adopting a multi-factor test that the Solicitor General's office just made up. Yeah, no, no more, no more multi-factor tests. Thank you very much. Um, well, I mean, okay. So to be to be clear, that's not my objection. Judge Coe yeah. thought was that was my objection <laughs> um, on remand, mm -hmm. and uh, it's not that it's a multi-factor test. It's that it's a bad multi-factor test, and one that's not based on history, the statute, case law, or anything but. Um, what I assume was the good people in the Solicitor General's office trying to come up with a, what they thought was a fair test. Right. 
Right. So, I mean, my take, one of my takeaways from your paper anyway, was that in a sense, you're actually holding Apple and the patent bar to what it said and saying, yeah, you know, we should stick with what Congress said, but you got it wrong. And this is what Congress actually said. I was wondering if you'd kind of give us the potted version of how you figured that out. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time um, just digging into old decisions by the commissioner of patents which of course aren't binding on courts, but I thought would be interesting to see what the patent office thought was an article of manufacture in, you know, the late 19th to early 20th centuries, Um, digging into old treatises. um, uh, The few cases, there's not a lot of cases. Um, it, It may seem in the paper, like I put a lot of cases in. Someone asked me, why do you have so many examples? And I was like, those aren't examples. Those are all, that's everything. That's literally everything I could find. Yeah. Um, And just trying to get a sense. And, you know, I just sort of dove into all of this. And I'm not a historian. I'm not claiming to be a historian. um, But other people were purporting to make historical arguments. So why couldn't I read this stuff, right? Sure. sure. Um, uh, And what I found, it sort of emerged this picture that was just really, really different. The way they thought about what was uh, designed, what was an article manufacture. And it just was a lot more sensible, right? So, so in like the chair example, the patent office would give you a design patent for a chair if you actually disclosed and claimed a design, either the shape or the surface ornamentation or both, for a whole chair, right? Um, and that was the article. So it was really easy. There was no question. There was no metaphysics. We didn't have to go into what's important or conceptually separable or anything that's in the government's test. You just Mm -hmm. look at the patent, right? Um, And there were some pretty interesting cases where people were trying to get broader scope and the PTO rejected them. Okay. Um, But if you wanted to claim just a part, right? Say, Say that I actually constructed the legs separately for whatever reason. I'm a chair leg maker. Mm. And that's all I do. I just sell the legs to other chair makers to make whole chairs. If that's all I wanted to claim, that's fine. But then the leg was the article manufacturer. Right. Not the whole chair. Um, right. And right. the other thing I found that was really, really fascinating is that there was a really, really clear distinction back in 1887 between articles of manufacture, which again are what we're doing designs for, mm. and machines. Um, the PTO, the court said these are very different near the twain shall meet based on statutory interpretation between the two regimes of utility patents and design patents. So, so think about what that means, right? Um, if that's right, if design patents aren't supposed to cover designs for machines, if, if a machine is not an article manufacturer, Mm. I think we can all agree that tiny mini pocket computers are machines, no matter how we define it. Um, then the iPhone could not, by definition, ever be an article of manufacture. Uh, so in that case, what would the article of manufacture be? I mean, I, I guess part of me wonders, does your research into the definition of article of manufacture cast any doubt on the patentability of the claims that were actually made in those patents? Well, I think that they should. Um, I think the boat might have sailed, though. Um, as I discuss in the paper, there was this case in 1930 when we had our first ever specialty patent court 
that said, well, okay, the statute says designs for article of manufacture, but surely Congress actually meant to include machines. So it's totally okay to get a design patent for a machine. Okay. Um, so I suspect courts aren't going to want to revisit that, but they should. <laughs> um, uh, but I think no matter what, it, it, it undermines this argument that Apple and its Mickey kept making was that this is what Congress intended, this is what Congress intended, this is what Congress intended, um, because they just didn't, <laughs> you know? Right. right. So at the very least, then, it sounds like Article of Manufacture, on on your reading of its historical meaning, ought to be understood as effectively limiting the scope of the design patent, or at least the remedies associated with the design patent. Absolutely. If nothing else, um, there just should be some connection. And I think stepping away from history or case law, it just seems intuitive that there should be some sense of proportionality between the wrong that was done, right, the infringement of the patent, and the remedy received. And I actually went to the Supreme Court uh, for this argument. It was my first time ever in the Supreme Court. Uh-huh. And it was fascinating to just watch the judges or the justices, sorry, and their nonverbal body language, mm-hmm. because they all had the same reaction that a lot of observers had, which was this federal circuit rule saying that under the statute, you had to get the profits for whatever the defendant sold, regardless of what was claimed regardless of uh, how the defendant was did their marketing or business or manufacturing uh, was just insane, right? It just doesn't make any sense. And I think one problem is even people who liked this rule um, sometimes didn't see is that it tends to undermine the legitimacy of the system, Hmm. right? You want rules that not only are fair, but that seem fair. Mm-hmm. And I know the F word, I was warned as a 1L not to use the F word, um, right? But uh, I think it is really interesting to see that Congress didn't actually intend this insane result. And what we do today is a different problem, right? Because like I said, so much has changed in the interim. Mm-hmm. How do we apply this rule that was meant for one system to a totally different contemporary system? Yeah. Well, I mean, it does seem at least sensible that, you know, Congress in 1887, for all its faults then, I'm sure, was, you know, no more insane anyway than (laughs) Congress is today. And presumably, if the rule produces bizarre outcomes now, it could also produce bizarre outcomes back then. So it seems like from a, as a sort of contextual element, it might appropriately inflect our, you know, interpretation as a matter of being sensible of how the statute was intended to be read. Yeah, it's also interesting. Um, One thing I found was that when this was passed, the most common type of design patent was design patents for surface ornamentation, Mm. for decorations that are printed, embossed, so it makes actually a lot of sense to me to say that people buy chairs with pretty carvings in the back or carpets with artistic designs on them because mm-hmm. they want that surface ornamentation, right? Again, assuming some base level of sufficient functional quality. Um, today, we see a lot more design patents for configuration for shape. With that added twist of 1980, Um, we got a decision that said, you don't have to claim the whole chair anymore. You can claim just a part of the Mm -hmm. chair if you want. Even a part that never existed 
is never sold, was never manufactured separately. Yeah. Well, in your new so work, it looks you, really different. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So in yeah. your new work, you really engage with that question itself, right? You're talking mm-hmm. about how we should think about design patent claiming and, you know, really what a design is in a sort of almost metaphysical sense. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about kind of your thinking there and where this project is going. Yeah. So this is very much a work in progress. Um, so don't hold me to any of this. Uh, my ideas may change. But this research I did, this historical research I did for the 1887 paper, really did change the way I thought about what's a patentable design. Because today we don't see this sort of sharp demarcation between the two different types of design. Um, and it actually made a lot of sense to me to maintain some of that, right? That you could claim the shape, the surface ornamentation, or a combination as being at least the three historical types of designs. And this idea from this 1880 case uh, that we should just let people claim whatever the heck they want and call it a design doesn't make a lot of sense from either a practical perspective, um, public notice, right? Uh, Letting people know what's going on or frankly, from a design perspective. I mean, I I studied art and design in college. And if I had turned in a fragment of a chair when the, uh, you know, designed for a fragment when the assignment was to design a whole chair, I would have gotten F, right? (laughs) No one would have said that was a design. Yeah. Um, So, so coming at this from an art and design background, it's just a little crazy to me um, that anyone would say that's a design. Uh, but of course, the word design itself is problematic, right? It's plastic and it changes. So I'm, I'm just sort, trying to sort through this question of, okay, we've got what's an article of manufacture, but what's a design for an article of manufacture? So just trying to figure out what makes sense, whether exploding the categories in 1980 made sense or not, mm-hmm. um, and sort of how do we go forward are the, the questions and the issues that I'm trying to explore now. Yeah, I mean, and I have to say, like, coming at similar questions from a copyright perspective, I feel like there's this kind of increasing atomism in the way that people think about ownership and especially about ownership in an intellectual property context that seems to be subtly influencing this sort of development of legal doctrine around subject matter in all of these different categories. And I really think that this new project does a great job of kind of outlining how that works and identifying why we ought to see that as potentially problematic in relation to the goals or sensible goals anyway (laughs) of the regime itself. Yeah, which of course is another open question. Um, And another project I'm working on is what's the point of this system, Mm -hmm. right? If the point of this system is full employment for patent attorneys who can be really sneaky and maximize the value for their savvy, well-financed clients, um, the status quo makes a lot of sense, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, If we want to do literally anything else, it doesn't necessarily make that much sense. Right, right. We know one thing that struck me when I was reading... I mean, both papers, but the new draft especially, was how the sort of taxonomic work you do in your Tumblr, sort of examining 
I mean, truly vast numbers of Mm -hmm. new design patents seems to have really informed your sense of how the system works on the ground. Yeah, definitely. So my Tumblr um, actually started as uh, just a way for me to kind of keep track of some patents that I thought were interesting and might potentially make good examples in my papers. Um, As you might imagine, this is an area where describing things in words is really hard. And so finding great visual examples, I think, is really, really helpful. Mm. Um, But then the question is, how do you sort them and store them? And I just started a Tumblr. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And shockingly to me, other people seem to find it interesting. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely do. I mean, I share it with all of my students. And and what's crazy to me is how, you know, I mean, many of the examples you post on your Tumblr seem um, implausible, shall we say, <laughs> as as protectable designs. But in particular, when you start showing some of these highly fragmented, really, like to call them partial designs almost seems even to give them more credit than they're worth. I mean, it's hard to even identify the design element in some mm-hmm. of these drawings. Yeah, and that's a really big problem with these is, uh, I mean, we could spend another hour talking about the hows and whys, but basically some of the rules that the patent office has come up with um, that have to do with when you can claim priority to other patent applications and what you can claim at different times have resulted in a world where some of these dotted line claims are actually pretty confusing. Mm. Um, It's hard to tell what exactly is claimed, what the scope is, um, and I mean, frankly, I think the the owners, the patentees like that, right? Um, in Apple, Samsung, there was a question, uh, you know, if the home button is dotted out, does that mean that there's no button, <laughs> right? Um, the technical rule is anything in dotted lines is not part of the claim design. But what does that mean? Right. Does that mean there's no button? Does it mean that the button can be any shape? Um, I think the app would like the question, the answer to that question to be yes, all of the above. It means all the things. <laughs> Um, but it's not obvious that that's true. Um, and one might imagine a world where if you really wanted to exclude things, you'd have to erase them entirely, but the patent applicants don't want to do that for various reasons. Um, and, and we do have this world where, as I started flipping through the new grants every week, like I said, just looking for interesting examples, it really became obvious to me that there's a public notice problem. Mm. Um, if you want to think of patents as property, which not everyone does and is problematic. Um, but it, it's like having, you know, a meets and bounds system where the meets and bounds could constantly change and no one really knows where they are. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. Right. So, so, you know, if you want to put up a fence, uh, to use the property metaphor, um, it's nice if everyone knows where the fence is, right? <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the ideal. Um, but we've moved away from that system and, I do think that's a separate problem um, that's related to this ultimate question of statutory subject matter. Uh Uh Okay. Well, Sarah, it's been great talking with you about this. And um, I know I've learned even more uh, from the conversation than from just reading the papers themselves. And I was wondering if you had any final thoughts about design patents, the design patent system, and, and some of these problems that you've been identifying uh, for listeners who may not 
previously have known anything about them? Sure. Um, I feel like this is the point where I need to say I actually really like design patents. <laughs> I've sounded really critical. Um, uh, there have been arguments through the years that we should get rid of design patents and use copyright instead, or we should get rid of design patents and use trademark instead, both of which I think are much, much worse options. Um, there's also worldwide a movement toward uh, unregistered and or non-examined rights like we see in Europe. Mm. And I think that's a really bad idea. Um, mm. So as many problems as there are with the design patent system, it's still as far as I can tell, the least worst system anyone's ever come up with for protecting this type of subject matter, right? Because we do have this sort of unique problem. And I keep coming back to chairs because I think it's just a great example Mm. um, where we have things that we value both for their useful attributes and for their visual attributes. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't really fit anywhere. So unless we're going to say no IP for you, which is never going to happen, right? That's just not, that's not a feasible answer. The question is, what do we do with this kind of thing? Mm-hmm. And coming up with a specific design system makes a lot of sense, whether we call it a patent system, right, um, as we've done, or we call it something else. I think the bones here are really good. Uh, and that's one reason why I've spent so much time thinking about this, that I think we've got the bones of something good here and we could build something really great. Um, uh, you know, it's just been ignored um, by everyone except some very crafty and motivated patent attorneys for a long time. <laughs> so I think it's it's about time for the rest of us to get involved in shaping the system. Great. Well, I hope your reform project is wildly successful. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks, and we'll talk again soon. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.